San Diego's immigration court is overwhelmed with asylum seekers. The Remain in Mexico policy has meant that all people seeking asylum in California need to be processed in San Diego's immigration court. This is creating a massive backlog and strain on all involved in the process. For the San Diego Union-Tribune, I'm Daniel Wheaton, and this is Border Dispatch, a special episode of your San Diego News Fix. Kate Morrissey, you're the immigration reporter for the Union-Tribune, and you had a story over the weekend about the Remain in Mexico policy and how that's creating a strain on both sides of the border with this whole process. When you explain, what is Remain in Mexico? Remain in Mexico, as it's known sort of widely, or migrant protection protocols, as it's known officially by the administration, is a program that returns certain asylum seekers to Mexico to wait for immigration court cases in the U.S. And so those folks come to ports of entry on their court dates. They're taken to the court when their hearing is done. They're taken assuming that the case is continuing because it normally takes several hearings to get through one of these cases. They're then taken back to Mexico again, and they repeat that process until their case is finished. The people who are being returned are from the Northern Triangle countries. Mm -hmm. It's adults and families, so including kids, um, all shuffling back and forth. And um, the way that that's different from what was happening in the past, when you had single adults, they would generally go to detention centers across the country. Mm -hmm. Um, In the case of families, um, there are some family detention spaces, but not here in California. So at least here for a long time, those families would be uh, released often with some kind of ankle monitor or device uh, to to track them, um, and they'd go stay with family or friends across the country while they wait for their cases. And the whole impetus of this program was basically to stop people from hanging out in the U.S. while this was going on, right? That was the main idea of just kind of keeping people out, in a sense? The Trump administration has frequently pushed this idea that people are claiming asylum in order to have time working in the U.S. while Mm -hmm. they wait for their cases. And so this is one of the strategies that the administration has come up with to change the way that the asylum system is functioning and to try to deter people who are not legitimate asylum seekers from entering the process. And in this whole discussion, it appears that the administration is doing everything that it can to limit the amount of people who can come in, but there's only so much that can be done with asylum cases. So when you walk us through the basics of how someone achieves asylum and how it is supposed to work. So that's uh, a very long and complicated process. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of if this, then that, and if this, then that. Um, I did a story maybe a year ago with a really good diagram that I would refer people back to if they want to get a really good sense Mm -hmm. of that process. But in a nutshell, um, if you come to the border, either at a port of entry or between ports of entry, and you say, I'm afraid to go home, uh, we are required under law to review your situation and see if it meets our asylum law standards as, as someone who should benefit from protection under our laws. And so... Um, there's a series of steps. You end up in, at, at one point in immigration court, and ultimately it's a judge who will decide whether your case fits that legal definition. So um, before things change with the Trump administration, how long typically would an asylum case take? That depends a lot 
um, based on where you were. Mm -hmm. It could take a year, two years, five years. Um, If one side or the other appeals the decision, that adds on additional time. These are not quick proceedings. Mm -hmm. And um, these policies are creating a massive backlog in the immigration court in San Diego. When you describe the frustrations that they're having right now. What this is doing is taking cases that would have been dispersed across the country to a variety of immigration courts and focusing them all here in San Diego, which is one of the probably smaller courts that we have. It's it's not the smallest by any means, but when you look at San Francisco or LA, they have quite a significant number of judges beyond the number that we have, but we're our judges are hearing all of the cases. And so in one instance, I sat in a courtroom with a judge until, you know, almost 630 at night. Mm -hmm. And judges are not usually in their courtrooms that late. You know, the the court security staff were gone. The judge's clerk clocked out at 5 p.m. So the judge was there by himself, the only one in the building still hearing cases. And that that sounds like something that really can't be sustained for a long amount of time. But is there any kind of recourse for the judges or is this just kind of what is now happening? There's not a lot of recourse for the judges. Um, They are employees under the executive branch. Mm -hmm. They are not judicial branch judges. And so um, they're employed by the Department of Justice. And what their boss says is is what happens. Their boss is the attorney general. And this program is part of what the executive branch has rolled out. And they they are following it. They are pushing back on... Um, certain ways that the program has been implemented, things mm-hmm. that they see as due process violations. Um, that's a big a big thing that I've seen in court lately. So what are some of those violations of due process then? So um, this gets a little bit technical, but mm-hmm. bear with me because it's it's really important. When someone begins an immigration court case, they're given a specific document telling them when their court hearing is. That's mm-hmm. called the notice to appear. And the notices for everyone being returned across the California border have a very generic address that says domicilio conocido. And then it says some version of Tijuana, Baja California, Mexico. So it's like not a real address. It's just like they're there. Right. So what one judge said is he believes that these are used in small villages that are so tiny that the person delivering the mail knows each individual person and can just walk up and hand it to them without having actual street addresses. And then the judge said, that's not going to work in Tijuana. (laughs) Certainly. So there's a big question about whether the documents were properly served because the judge, especially so if someone doesn't show up to court, which we've seen happening a lot under this program, people aren't making it Mm -hmm. to the port of entry on the date of their their court date at the correct time for whatever reason. And so there are a number of people not making it to court. And so normally, uh, if someone has been properly served with their notice, the judge can say, all right, this person knew they had a hearing. They didn't come. I'm going to order them deported in absentia. I'm going to uh-huh. order them deported in their absence. And because the addresses on these documents are not valid addresses for the people they are meant for, mm-hmm. the judges are having a really hard time deciding to do that. And so I, in every case where I've been in the courtroom, the judge has opted for another decision instead of going forward with that in absentia order. So how is that even allowed? It, it just seems like almost like a trap in a sense. 
So the border officials are the ones filling out the paperwork, the ones scheduling the first court hearing before people are returned to Mexico. Um, Normally, it is the person who has the immigration court case. It's their responsibility to make sure that the court has their correct address and they have to update their address within five days if they move. Mm -hmm. And so the government attorney has been arguing, well, you know, this is the address that we have on file for this person. Normally, it's an address given by the person. So we should be able to go forward. And the judges are saying, no, 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 no. I don't think that's happening here. I don't think there's any way that this many people all gave this same generic address as the place that they live in Tijuana. In covering this, you deal with a lot of organizations that kind of assist migrants, people seeking asylum. Is there any organization that's trying to be like the the mediator in a sense and making sure that the information gets from point A to point B? Because I can imagine like in shelters and things like that, is there some kind of process to make sure those papers get to those people or is that just missing? So when people are returned to Mexico, they're handed a stack of paperwork by border officials on their way out the door, including mm-hmm. the notice to appear as well as instructions in English and in Spanish saying, come back to the port of entry on this date at this time so we can take you to your court hearing. And then they kind of have to figure it out themselves. Mm-hmm. There's a legal organization called Alotro Lado that um, has been trying to offer workshops to um, help people understand the process that they now find themselves in. Um, there are a number of organizations who joined together to bring a lawsuit against the federal government about this program. And so they've been communicating with some people who have been returned, but not nearly all. There are thousands of people who have been returned at this point, And a lot of them are sort of fending for themselves in terms of getting information, understanding what's been given to them. Um, some of them are not even literate, mm-hmm. which is something that's come up in court as well. And um, you know, they'll be there representing themselves without an attorney telling a judge, yes, you've given me these things, but I can't read. Also, this is creating tension in Tijuana as well, and your story focused on some individuals who were kind of dealing with the system there. When you describe what it is like on the other side of the border? So, as I said, when people are returned, it's sort of up to them to figure out what they're going to do, where they're going to live. Um, Tijuana shelters have been close to full for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that has to do with another policy that controls how many asylum seekers are allowed to ask for asylum each day at the port of entry. So we've ended up with several thousand people on a wait list to ask for asylum to begin with. And so a lot of those folks are waiting in shelters for, you know, five weeks, six weeks. And then you have the people who are being returned. Um, I was only able to find a small number of people who had been returned at the individual shelters and the shelters were pretty close to capacity when I was asking them mm-hmm. how many people were there. Um, there are some individuals who have managed to find under the table work and are paying rent. Um, it's important to note that it's under the table work. Mexico initially said that it was going to be giving some kind of work permit to these folks and that has not happened. Uh-huh. They're getting the same piece of paper that you and I and anyone else get when we go to Tijuana for a day that says, yes, you're allowed to be here and nothing more. And then there's folks who have made friends or found, you know, people in Tijuana who are wanting to to help out and are putting people up. 
And then there's people living on the street. So it, it sort of runs the gamut of, of what each individual is able to find when they get returned. And given the amount of strain on this entire process, what part of it seems the closest to breaking? You know, that's a good question. And I think that depends on what kind of breaking you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, I've met people who are tired of being homeless and on the street in dangerous parts of Tijuana who have said, you know, I might as well just go home. I'm probably going to be killed there, but at least I'll be at home mm-hmm. instead of living this on the streets every day in Tijuana waiting for my court case that I can't afford a lawyer for because I can't even afford to pay for food or shelter in Mexico. Um, so that's some might consider that breaking. Um, the fact that San Diego's caseload is now growing faster than the caseload nationally, um, some might consider that breaking. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it it depends on which part of the system you're looking at, but all of it appears to be very burdened at this point. So what are some of the stories of people that you've met reporting the story? So there was one family in particular who I met um, that was especially interesting because the father in the family has a cousin who lives here locally and so and who has offered to take care of him. The, the man is a U.S. citizen. His two sons are in the Navy. And so their rooms are available for this family were they to be allowed to cross and, and come stay with him. But so far... Um, they've been returned under the policy and are likely to continue in that situation. And so he's trying to support them while they stay with a friend in Tijuana. He brings them clothes and food and money, um, you know, but he's really wanting to be able to help his family more. He remembers what it was like when he came, you know, 30 years ago, fleeing different kinds of persecution himself. And so, you know, it's most of the people who, who I've met in Tijuana are headed much further away. But to meet a family that's headed right here and they haven't been able to get there, that was particularly striking. Yeah, and that's uh, one of the harsh realities of the border. All right, Kate Morrissey, thank you so much. Thank you. In other border news, Aime Benia of Chula Vista is likely Baja California's next governor. His election means an end to the 30 years of political control of Mexico's Nacional Action Party. Benia is of the same political party as a new president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. Thanks for listening to the San Diego News Fix, which goes live weekdays at 5 p.m. You can also listen to Hot Lava, our Padres podcast. Union Tribune sports editor Jay Posner and baseball beat writer Kevin Acey talk about the team's ups and downs, comings and goings. Look for it in your podcast app or go to sandiegounionstribune.com slash hotlava. Until next time. <laughs>